Welcome to the Weekend Bite. I'm Daniel Snyder, and we're diving in right away today with Chris DeMuth Jr., founder of Sifting the World, a service found on Seeking Alpha Marketplace, who back in January came on this program and presented to you his big idea for the year. And since that episode, the stock is up more than 15%. And everyone, well, everyone knows that the market is in a correction. So obviously, there is some money to be made out there. Chris, maybe we should start by calling you Mr. Alpha now. I don't know. You recently put out another article at the end of April about your favorite idea for the year, Renren, that I might also add had an interesting circuit breaker trip to the downside this week. But and, and maybe you were the dip buyer. I don't know. But you say it's a buy under $32. So let's break it down. Are you still in the position? And is the thesis still intact? Yes and yes. It is uh, one of my top three positions in a quite concentrated portfolio. Uh, it is uh, still intact. And uh, there was a bit of drama today on a massive and price insensitive seller that uh, uh, I believe is disconnected to any news about the company or their ongoing litigation. Uh, sometimes I say, as far as I know, and that's simply because I don't know very far. In this case, I'm pretty involved uh, in uh, this uh, company. Um, it's something I can talk about at the moment, but it's on and off when I can discuss it. Um, I was on a steering committee for uh, uh, shareholders uh, at one part of the litigation, um, but it's uh, it's a great opportunity. I mean, it's like having a stock that pays a dividend, albeit once, uh, in excess of 100%. Um, there is a small uh, uh, company that can be left over if and when we get uh, the distribution uh, uh, later this year, we can then subsequently discuss uh, what it's worth. Um, I've said cavalierly within two or three bucks of $5. So uh, it's it's not gonna be a lot, but, but um, it will be, uh, 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 at a cost basis of well less than zero at that point. So uh, net. Um, so yeah, still still intact. Uh, uh, it's it's kind of scary when you glance at PNL and all of a sudden it's dropping by millions and millions of dollars every second for no reason. And when you're quite sure there's nothing happening, good or bad today. Uh, but um, that was uh, anomalous. Uh, I instantly was trying to uh, add significantly today, but it, it, the whole thing went very quickly. I, I did not. As far as I, I can double check, I don't believe I got any more shares. Yeah, so so you're still in the position that that is we have established that. Um, you know, maybe maybe it was somebody just getting a little liquidation. Uh, you know, with how the markets react, and we don't know. Um, but let's just do a quick synopsis as well, because in your recent sure. article, you, you, for the people that haven't seen that prior video about Renren. Um, you were talking about, obviously, you're in litigation, you're getting uh, legal fees reduced. Kind of give a little bit of a background as to why this is setting up as such an easy play. I don't know if it's been easy. Uh, it's uh, certainly been complicated. I, th I think it's, it's very compelling to me. Um, but um, in a, a derivative suit um, on behalf of uh, the, the company, but shareholders bringing it, and uh, against kind of um, uh, founders that uh, misappropriated some of the uh, shareholders. Um, uh, is that is this in regards to the SoFi deal that you mentioned last yeah. time? Yeah. So, uh, but what's happened since then uh, is uh, coming to a 
uh, like-minded understanding with the judge involved. So we had uh, a mediation effort and the mediator was the judge. Uh, so uh, that was uh, a chance to uh, try to come to a uh, business solution uh, between the defendants, the plaintiffs, and most importantly, the opponents of the settlement that the defendants and plaintiffs had previously reached that failed in the sense that we didn't come to an understanding, uh, but uh, we uh, subsequently uh, heard from the judge uh, in a, uh, uh, from uh, discussing this from the perspective of somebody who is very, very aligned uh, at this point with our current settlement effort. Uh, that uh, is uh, going to benefit the current shareholders, uh, as is typical in the derivative uh, case, uh, that's going to go directly to current holders. Um, and that importantly, uh, substantially reduces the mix uh, between what comes to us and what our uh, lawyers get. Uh, and so that makes it uh, accretive to current shareholders as well. So we thought we were playing for something call it uh, the mid-20s, it looks like we're going to get something in the low 30s, and it looks like you can add a little bit of equity value above and beyond uh, that. Um, uh, you know, if, if it was managed to perfection, call it eight bucks, and it will not be managed to perfection uh, in terms of the remaining stub equity value. So call it something, 32 plus. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so that's a very good outcome for us. And it'll take, um, you know, we're in May, uh, so it'll be kind of June. Uh, we will then uh, get to the end of the road uh, with this part of the process, and then it'll probably be appealed, but appealed on very, very dubious, shaky uh, grounds that have no real context in the law or the facts or the, uh, or the uh, situation uh, kind of it would be un unprecedented at that point. Anything can happen, uh, but um, but it would be something where the plaintiffs, defendants, and judge are all basically in agreement on how this proceeds at this point. Yeah, Chris, that's and I, and I love this because this is like these stories that just create alpha, right? We we both know that the market is just complete tanking right now, right? Even with the CPI numbers that were released this week, inflation is cooling, but it's still over consensus, like. The market's having a significant re-multiple and liquidity is coming out like, but there's still areas to be made, or might yeah. be made in the market. And you, and you found that, but so hold off. I wanna, I wanna take you over to your strong opinion about ARC, if we, if we can move sure. forward. Um, Cause obviously Kathy Wood came out and said, we might be in a global recession already. Um, and, and I know you have a, a very strong opinion. You recently put out an article a little while ago. It says, uh, you know, you wouldn't, if you own ARC's, ARC's K fund, ARC K, ARC KK, uh, sell it. If you don't own it, short it. Then ignore it and check back in five years. Can you give us a little, what's, what's the thesis here? Sure. Um, so I, I love uh, opportunities that aren't correlated with the market. We love uh, litigation and litigation finance. We can lose money, we can be wrong, but it's our own fault when we are uh, in something like REN, uh, working on some other very REN-like opportunities right now. Uh, we love opportunities where there's just 
a pricing mismatch like energy uh, equities versus energy commodities right now are very, very interesting to us. And we love kind of quirky, you know, index reconstitutions, that kind of thing. What we really don't love slash do love on the short side um, are, uh, you know, especially looking over this past year, uh, unprofitable and in fact, never profitable uh, tech. Uh, money making is something that mostly correlates with itself. And I think that you had a really novel situation that requires a kind of weird brew of uh, COVID and ZERP that together I think of as this era of no opportunity cost where uh, people, uh, many retail traders newly attracted to, uh, I don't know if they're attracted to investing, certainly attracted to stocks by uh, mobile apps uh, and, uh, and nothing else to do. You know, in their parents' basement, uh, eating Cheetos, wearing a bathrobe and trading stocks on their phone, um, combined with uh, approximately 0% interest rates so that you had you had nothing else to do and your money had nothing else to do. And I think that there was a category of stocks. Uh, and I try to kind of grab this a few different ways. I kind of first wrote this up in February of last year. And um, ARC was a almost perfect kind of subcontractor aggregating these. Um, and uh, so I think that they were, you know, I put them up on Sifting the World at the time, just every single one of them as, uh, as shorts uh, last February. Um, another one that you can look at, and I suddenly wrote this, I think I wrote about this a couple months ago, um, but Goldman has a really good index on non-profitable, uh, as I call never profitable tech uh, companies. Um, and they are, most of them are worth less. All of them are worth less than what the market gave them credit for. And there's better than average hit rate of flat out frauds. Um, so it's kind of a, a nirvana of, uh, of, of short opportunities. Um, and, and I think it's going to be seen as a very peculiar uh, confluence of interests that led to the market giving these credit. Uh, the way I think about it in terms of interest rates is, is a little clearer if you go between now and the time where they are uh, cash flow break even. So, you know, call it somebody with a business plan. Typically, for whatever reason, they kind of pick a date at the end of the decade. I think they try to say something that at least has a 20 in it, you know, so they don't say, oh, well, we'll be able to be profitable in the 30s, but call it uh, call it you know, 2028 or something like that. And many of the de-spacked equities had the same uh, characterization. Um, if you just look at the cumulative interest rate necessary, you know, so the opportunity cost for them circa uh, uh, you know six months ago or certainly a year ago, uh, you kind of get there, and it wasn't a huge cost. Well, interest rates start rising a little bit, and you know. It, the, the cumulative uh, difference between now and getting to where they are um, potentially profitable, even stipulating their uh, generally dubious claims, uh, the world just changes completely. Uh, and these are literally confidence games. I mean, they are, and I don't mean that as an insult uh, to, uh, to uh, anybody uh, at these companies or people who invest in them, uh, like Kathy Woods, they're, they're just literally, they, um, if a value investment goes down, it becomes more of a value investment. But if something that is a, 
I think I described it as a liquidity Ponzi scheme. It's not a, it's not a traditional Ponzi scheme. It's a little bit different, but it requires new capital uh, to keep them going um, or they would collapse. Uh, and amazingly enough, um, the performance has been poor over the past year, but the confidence hasn't even collapsed. Yet. I mean, the two things that are left to go, the kind of two uh, legs that have not yet been sought out are uh, Tesla and, uh, and massive um, redemptions. Uh, so the people who like this kind of thing still like it. And Tesla has held up admirably. Uh, if either of those things change, then there could be uh, a debacle uh, for ARC, uh, for never profitable tech uh, generally. Uh, and that's from here. Uh, so that's still ahead. So I'm still um, quite um, uh, cautious on them or uh, enthusiastically negative. So can I get your take, though? Because, I mean, the ARC fund is one of the only funds that I think has been recognized recently that has seen massive inflows, right? Yeah. Like, what do you make of that? So in a sense, my thesis is broken, wrong, hasn't played out yet. I mean, the, the, the price has reacted, but um, there's very few. I can't think of any component that I would like more, say, on the long side. I wouldn't be even approximately uh, interested alongside of almost anything that they own. And, and there's nothing about it that I like more now than, um, than a year ago. Um, so uh, yeah, no, there, um, there's still a taste for this kind of thing. Um, the, the record of dip buying over the last decade or so has been almost perfect. I mean, you could have an algo doing it and you make money over the subsequent 12 months pretty much every time. Um, uh, there's a very funny chart somebody put around yesterday of uh, every time CNBC has a kind of markets in turmoil uh, melodrama. It's been particularly good. Um, I think that era is over completely. I think what we're dealing with now is different, but it's not um, demonstrably different yet. And so I think there are people who uh, like this sort of thing that are still uh, hanging in there. Uh, the nice thing on the short side, though, is that the underlying companies will run out of money. I mean, they will, uh, they will, you know, the, the, when the credit market closes, it's a lot more punitive than just equity markets, uh, generally. Uh, and so, um, the, 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 these are, uh, a value trap can kind of be a value trap for quite some time, but a never profitable, uh, tech name post COVID, uh, post ZERP, uh, is going to get, uh, into a kind of non-fictional world that uh, has finite lifespans. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too. I mean, we're like you said, it, it was pretty much these hyper-growth names turned into a uh, sort of correlation of Bitcoin and crypto, right? You were buying, um, and I know this might stir emotions with some people, but you, you were buying in hopes that somebody else was going to buy from you at a higher price. And mm -hmm. that, was, that needed massive amounts of liquidity. And now we have the Fed speakers coming out this week talking about how they're ready to move up to $2 trillion out of the economy, right? So it's definitely a different playing field going forward. Um, I do want to keep moving forward and get back to you because you did, you did mention the uh, reconstitution that you like to focus on as well. And I, and I know we have the Russell 2000 reconstitution coming up. I heard that you have a favorite in that play. Yeah. Uh, would you so, mind sharing that? So this used to be a much easier trade for me than it is now. Like it used to be really inefficient and now it's kind of gotten to be efficient enough that there's a world of index arbitrageurs that get these things about right. Uh, there's just a little bit of art to it in terms of 
M&A spinoffs, uh, SPACs made a big difference uh, in recent years in terms of kind of getting, kind of tweaking the cutoff. Uh, and then uh, I also play the reconstitution, but I do it uh, with a little bit of purity in that I only do it with things that I want to own anyways, and it's kind of, kind of gooses uh, them a little bit. And then you want something that's a little unexpected that kind of creeps up to one of my uh, top uh, three positions. Uh, uh, Amplify Energy, uh, AMPY, uh, is getting added, but I don't think that's a big surprise for the market. That kind of creeped up. The one that I think is super interesting as a reconstitution uh, play is SWK, the name of the company, not the ticker. It's slightly confusing that there's an unrelated company with that ticker. Ticker is SWKH. Um, it has a majority shareholder. It has a new board. Um, it actually just put out uh, quite a good uh, uh, quarter, a little boring quarter, but quite a good uh, good enough quarter um, uh, earlier today. Um, but that really wasn't expected to make it, and I believe it did. Uh, it's right around the kind of, you know right around the cutoff uh, for the Russell. So I think that having hit that, I think that there's going to be a significant amount of uh, buying uh, pressure. Uh, over the next month as that gets uh, priced in properly and indexers have to buy it. Um, the floats are uh, particularly low because of a majority holder, um, but it's a really interesting uh, company. I mean, the way to think about it is half of it or so is a kind of net at least 10% or so yielding uh, a credit portfolio of kind of novel uh, uh, loans um, that doesn't really have a good obvious fit in a bigger bank, but um, I'm I'm super comfortable with NAV. I think that that's a kind of good uh, non-operating business. And then this operating business that you know, they hold it, uh, not the book really matters for this kind of thing, at you know a little over a buck, and it could be worth nothing, but it could be worth twenty bucks. I mean, it could be you know there's tons and tons of optionality here. Uh, to uh, really open up the possibility of being overpaid. You know, I don't, I don't mind owning a speculative, growthy, potentially bonanza investments as long as I don't have to pay for it. And uh, this is an opportunity where you know you kind of get it uh, a ton of optionality in something that is, to me, in the part that I find totally analyzable. The non-operating business is worth at least nineteen dollars a share. It's going to be very, very hard for index. Uh, indexers to uh, buy this without pushing the price up several more dollars. Uh, it's already beneath a stink bid that the uh, majority uh, owner put in, uh, and they have very good access to information about this company and, and certainly uh, the ability and history of analyzing it. So it's kind of like you're buying it beneath a bid, you're buying it for its non-operating business, the operating business. I mean, it'd be a very scary one to be short because you could wake up one day, it could easily double. Um, especially if there was some kind of resolution between the two parts of the business, uh, eventually they'll sell it. Uh, and um, it's the kind of thing where I would typically look at this and say, long term, I love it. Fantastic investment uh, at uh, call it between 19 and 20 dollars a share. Uh, but I have no idea what's going to happen in the short term. This is one where I'd say all of those things. And I think it's going to do quite well in the short term as well because of the index. Yeah, all good points. And I, I do want to remind our audience as well that if you're looking for those statements of beneficial ownership changes, like he was talking about, you can find those on the symbol page on Seeking Alpha. We do have the SEC filings there for you as well to keep an update on that. 
Um, let's go ahead and leave it there, Chris. We appreciate you. I, I look forward to speaking to you again here in the future. We'll catch up on Ren Ren. We'll catch up on this name right here. Um, but congrats on all the alpha you've made this year and protecting that downside. And we hope to see you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back. Look, Grandpa left this for you. He would have wanted you to have it. What can I do with it? It's it's a watch. I'll stick with mine. Has games on it. Right. Bertrand Seguin, seeking alpha's apps and gaming expert. Seeking Alpha, all you need to know about investing in apps and gaming stocks or in anything else. Go to SeekingAlpha.com slash experts. Recently, I sat down with Alfonso Picatillo, who ran a $20 billion portfolio at ING and has since started offering content for free on his newsletter called The Macro Compass. Take a look at this clip. And of course, we don't want to go around yelling, recession is coming, recession is coming, right? But you're, you're pointing out a really good point about, you know, credit contracting, right? And population not growing. Or should we be worried here? Is this a moment in time where um, we may have just seen the height of our AKA roaring 20s that doesn't seem to be coming? Well, the roaring 20s was never a thing I could subscribe to because GDP growth over decades is driven by how many people enter the labor force actively. So is the labor force becoming bigger or smaller? because of aging and birth rates, et cetera, or immigration as well. And how productive is the labor force and the capital we throw at the economy? Well, if you look at those things, Daniel, they've both been deteriorating aggressively since the 80s. Demographics is pretty bad and it's becoming worse as well over the next decade. Productivity trends are not going anywhere. We misuse capital because you know, interest rates have been low for so long and therefore you know, capital is allocated not in an optimal way in our economy. So I never subscribed to the Roaring Twenties in the first place. What could make growth go faster is cyclical growth. And how do you achieve cyclical growth is with credit creation. That's what this chart shows. The blue line is the amount of credit being thrown at the private sector, and it measures the acceleration or the deceleration of credit creation. This is important because while people talk about the Fed prints money, the ECB prints money, in reality, the spendable money that we as private sector agents, corporate citizens get, doesn't come from the Fed. It comes from the government. It comes from banks. So if the government is cutting your taxes, Daniel, you're going to have your bank account growing bigger because you know, you're going to have more disposable income to spend. The government is making, making a hole in their balance sheet and it's you know, getting basically a tailwind behind your balance sheet. That's credit creation. When you get a mortgage for a house, you all of a sudden have money that you didn't have before. Now you can buy a house that you couldn't buy otherwise if it was not for credit. So the blue line measures the acceleration or deceleration in this series, and it's decelerating very quickly now. And therefore, normally speaking, it pre predicts earnings and GDP growth to decelerate as well cyclically with a 12-month lag. And this is exactly what we're seeing now. Yeah, so I want to bring up uh, this great chart that you sent over because we were talking about credit expansion, credit creation within the private sector. And a lot of that, as you point out here in the chart, comes from residential, like residential real estate. What is that, $258 trillion? That's correct. So I, I want to point out this chart as many people 
believe the equity and the bond market are the biggest markets in the world. And that's just not right. The biggest market in the world by far is the real estate market. If you sum the residential real estate market, the commercial real estate market and agricultural land, so the entire real estate market, you are around about at $300 trillion. You need to sum both the global equity market, the bond market and the gold market not to reach the same amount. I'm not sure whether I'm passing the message. It's really huge, the real estate market. And this is also why being so big and being so reactive to interest rates, because 85% of, of um, real estate purchases happen to be backed by a mortgage, Daniel. So if interest rates go up or down, it obviously changes your appetite to buy houses at a higher price or at a lower price. So it's a very large segment and very prone to interest rate changes. And it tends to drive the decision-making of the private sector too. And now mortgage rates have gone through the roof from 3% to 5% in a short amount of time. The pace of change matters as well, which is informing American people, European people, that they can't afford buying the same house anymore at the same price because their salary hasn't gone up, but their mortgage installment has gone up by 30% on average. And so when these, this the biggest market in the world slows down, it has second and third round effects on the economy too. If you want to find the full interview with ALF, head over to Seeking Alpha by using the QR code on the screen or Seeking Alpha's YouTube channel. Now, let's get over to the one and only Kim Khan for this week's Catalyst Watch. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, um, we've got earnings season kind of winding down, but still some important names um, coming up, including Walmart. Um, and we've also got Home Depot and Lowe's, which gives you some insight onto the housing sector. Um, that'll be important. Um, on the economic front, again, retail, it'll be retail sales will probably be most closely watched. And um, Fed Chief Jerome Powell will be speaking. That's going to be interesting, given all the inflation data that we've had this past week. And, you know, he was how he was perceived as dovish at his press conference. Does that stick around, you know, or does he put 75 basis points back on the table? Um, and um, most interesting for me, I'll be looking at um, the um, quarterly uh, disclosure from hedge funds of their holdings, just to see how things have changed up there. You go, people be pouring through the 13 Fs to see like, you know, if they've picked up any of these beaten down growth names that have just, you know, gotten hammered from their highs this year. Have they, you know, tested the water in some of the recovery stocks that got killed or are they sticking more with the value and getting defensive names? Um, you know, a lot of them have taken a big hit on in there. You know, in their performance, so that'll be interesting to see. That's all for this week's episode. Remember to protect that downside risk by using Seeking Alpha's portfolio warnings, and have a great weekend.